Hello and welcome to another episode of Hashtag Talk to Me, the podcast. Today's guest is Alistair Campbell, also known as AJ. And he's a partner at Level Law. And they're a new law boutique who specialise in the world of media and sports law. Now, if you're a regular listener to the podcast, you'll know that on here we love nothing more than finding the stories of lawyers who have taken brave career decisions. And in many ways, there's nothing braver than leaving behind a very well-paid, very well-respected job in the magic circle to become self-employed and make it in the world of sports law. So here to tell you his story and have a little chat about the interesting world of sports law is AJ. Enjoy. Glad to have it. Um, I have to say, uh, I'm I'm really glad after a week of headhunting structured finance and securitization lawyers to finally be speaking to, uh, oh, I'm going to dig a pit for myself here, but dare I say it, an interesting lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope so. I hope so. <laughs> no, I think, I think sports lawyers, criminal lawyers, dare I say divorce lawyers, just because of the juicy gossip. I think there's a, there's a small category of lawyer that you can be that if you're at a dinner party, people will actually want to ask you questions. Yeah, I think, I think people ears perk up when you say I'm a sports lawyer and suddenly they, cool. have, they have they have questions. Uh, well, indeed, and, and uh, as do I. Um, uh, as, as, any, as a good recruiter should, I had a little stalk on, uh, on, on your LinkedIn before the podcast just uh, to, to review the CV. Um, let's, let's, let's run through it together because I think, you know, for, um, you know, for all intents and purposes, until very recently, um, your sort of career in the legal industry had followed a, um, you know, a, a pretty much a very mainstream theme, I think, it's fair to say. I think that that's that's absolutely fair to say. Yes. So um, I went to university at Oxford in my second year. I did some VAC schemes at Magic Circle firms. Um, that was kind of what everybody in my cohort was doing. So I went along and did that as well. Yes, because you were studying um, you were studying jurisprudence, so you didn't choose the easy option, did you? <laughs> no. I mean, well, that's what Oxford calls its law degree. It still to this day rankles me slightly that I don't have an LLB. Um, yeah, why is that? I, I don't. I don't get it. What's that about? Just tradition. I, I, I've never. Yeah, tradition. I think um, it's like one of those things. I can sort of pay an admin fee to upgrade to an MA. Um, that you can do at Oxford and Cambridge as well. I think, uh, but that's one of those sort of archaic traditions that they managed to get away with. Um, I'm sure everybody knows what. MA Oxon really means it means you've paid 25 quid to have your status upgraded in the system <laughs> still still counts still counts now <laughs> um I I guess from you know as somebody who, I mean presumably you got your training contracts fairly early on um in in in, in your uh, in your sort of journey so you'd have got it whilst you were still at university presumably yeah, that's right. So summer of my second year at university, I was uh, doing VAC schemes, um, did a couple of Magic Circle firms and then interviewed for training contracts there uh, and was lucky enough to get a couple of offers, um, uh, which, I, which I gratefully accepted. Um, and then so that would have been about 2008 and the uh, global financial crisis happened. Um, and I was one of the cohort that was deferred for a year. Okay. Nice so, little gap here, holiday. Uni. Yeah, yeah. I did a. I spent some time working in the bar actually at college, uh, which was which was 
good fun to, to earn some money to go away with. Um, so I sort of played quite a lot of darts, served some beer to my mates Ooh. in the year below, nice. um, and had quite a good time. Um, and yeah, then I went and did a bit of traveling, sort of fairly, fairly unoriginal Southeast Asia gap year. Uh, Love it. Fair. <laughs> yeah. So when, so um, fast forward to your training contract, did you, did you, were you one of those who started their training contract and knew, you, you knew exactly what you were going to qualify into and you had your sort of five year plan in place or was it just, let's give this law thing a go and see what happens? No, I mean, I started out very much wanting to be a banking lawyer um you know Alan Overy known for its banking team that's and that combined with the corporate and ICM teams are kind of the real drivers litigation is sort of the fourth leg of the table uh if I can put it like that um and yeah so I started off wanting to be a banking lawyer but uh when I arrived I had no choice as to which seats I was sat in first there's some choices later on down the line but I was thrown into arbitration in my first seat and and loved it i was uh, you know drafting letters and pleadings and things were adversarial with the other side and i was using my law degree uh you know i felt like i was researching case law and doing all this interesting adversarial stuff and just fell in love with it and then when i did some transactional seats later in my training contracts i enjoyed it but for different reasons um and enjoyed it less than the arbitration so continued with that indeed so uh, i mean it, it's it's fairly well known uh, in 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 the market that the you know the ano dispute seems a sort of a, a fairly serious operation uh, it's, uh, it's it's got a reputation for being kind of a best of the best yes sir kind of uh, kind of place produces a lot of very good quality lawyers um how i mean you, you stayed there for for a number of years and you know your career was progressing and as you know as i kind of alluded to earlier this sort of very um sort of straightforward you know degree from oxford magic circle law firm you know promotion to through to senior associate then you know in the midst of lockdown you've taken this you've taken this turn and it's part of part of what i guess has sort of led us to having this conversation today in that a big part of this podcast is me speaking to lawyers that have taken um, you know, taken decisions in their career that have perhaps, you know, taken them out of the out of the mainstream outside of big law into um, into fields, you know, new fields. Um, we should we should probably just explain to people who aren't familiar with um, the firm and the platform that you're at now exactly what level is. Yeah, so uh, Level was founded three or four years ago um, on a new law model, which means it's set up much more like a barrister's chambers in that uh, lawyers at Level don't have a salary. We are consultants, uh, independent contractors, and um, are paid as a percentage of our billable hours. Um, so much like a chambers, a, a rent from our billable hours goes to the firm and the remainder uh, is paid to the consulting company that we use. Yeah. So, it's it, you know, whatever it is, you, the business that you generate, a portion of that business goes to the firm and they provide you with, uh, you know, some facilities some some other things. You kind of share the share the costs and overheads of certain things. But, you know, everything else goes to you. So you kind of keep the lion's share, I guess, of, of you know, the fruits of your labor. Exactly, exactly. And it's uh, very different to being in a salaried model. There's nothing quite like uh, having to earn your own business and to earn your own keep to motivate you um, 
to get out and do some work in the mornings you know um certainly perhaps when i had a quiet day before uh i might have uh, kicked back and relaxed a little bit more than i do now um you know now if i have a quiet day i'm thinking what can i be doing to drum up some more business how can i how can i drive this and and, and make it a success oh, yeah exactly that your 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 autonomy is that much greater you're running your own business essentially for all intents and purposes your practice is your is your business there is nothing i mean presumably there are there are referrals and and things like that but not not enough to keep you you know to keep you accustomed in the lifestyle and and type of career that you want to have so you've, you've got to go for it now this this is what makes that transition for me so interesting particularly for for somebody like yourself who you know you've come out of you know the mothership essentially um and i I certainly, from my perspective as a, as a recruiter, I, I've seen the growth of, of, of new law businesses. And there's a, there's a quote that I want to bring up from a previous podcast, a guy called John Haggis, who set up Kepler Wolf, which is a, a, a similar model, not in the not in the sports arena, um, but in in the media in, uh, arena. And he said to me that uh, this isn't his quote, this is from somebody else, but there are three big addictions in life, the sugar, crack and, and the monthly salary. Um, and going, you know, going from having that, <laughs> going, going from having that sort of uh, that that monthly salary to being like, right, okay, better earn some, better better go out and earn a crust is a huge, huge transition. Um, so, you know, for, for you, that started in in January 2020. So we're we're, ca- we're you know essentially catching you right at the beginning of that journey. Um, I, I just want to talk quickly about the, you know, you, I guess your thought process running up to making that move how uh, I think a couple of questions so first first of all at what point did you decide that you were going to make a move and at what point and how did it sort of uh, how did that decision um form in terms of finding level and uh, uh, and and all of that part of the journey yeah so there are a number of uh kind of inter intersecting factors that really made the decision uh one that i was comfortable with um, you know, I really enjoyed my time at a and learned a huge amount from some really, really talented people, but I was getting to a stage where I didn't really enjoy the subject matter of what I was doing that much. The law was really interesting and uh, some of the research and some of the points we were making in cases were novel and exciting and brilliant, but um, there's only so much, at least for me, oil and gas work and energy work uh, and sort of pharma work that uh, I could derive interest from. Um, one of the stories I use quite a lot, and it's not actually in any of those sectors, but we did a, a, a case where my particular role was being the expert on paint issues on a yacht. Um, and so I literally spent time watching paint dry. Um, <laughs> Uh, and it's, that's it might sound like a joke but it, it's it's absolutely true um and i wasn't really deriving that kind of subject matter interest from it that i wanted um and so i started to consider uh sports law as a career i'd done some sports work at ano and i did a lot of regulatory work at ano which is very similar to the regulatory uh, stuff in, in the sports sector so i started looking at uh, opportunities in the sector um, and uh, as you can imagine it's uh, quite a competitive environment um, and uh, so I was finding that um, it, well I, w- I was finding that there wasn't a huge amount uh, out there yeah um, 
and I, I, I discovered Level um, through looking at the Chambers rankings. Uh, level, I think, is, 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 is in band two. And I, I sent them quite a, a speculative email saying, let's have a chat. Um, and it, it snowballed from there, really. Uh, I, I'd always been had a, a sort of faint interest in the new law model because uh it is brilliant um and gives you the freedom and i sort of was addicted like you say to the monthly salary so never really explored that that much but through my conversations with level um you know i, I was made to or I, I was given comfort about how the how the model works and how good the model can be um and you know at, at the same time of that as well as wanting something that I could derive more interest in, in terms of subject matter. Um, I was also like many of us uh, going through a bit of an environmental crisis. Personally, you know, trying to eat more vegetarian, watching sort of cowspiracy and things on Netflix. Um, and it didn't really sit right with me that I was doing my best to separate my recycling and then going off to work for big oil in a multi-million dollar case. Uh, <laughs> sort of felt like it wasn't doing wonders for my soul um, yeah understood if, yeah. If, if, I, if I can put it like that and then you, you, you could say that uh, acting for sports stars and athletes and footballers is not exactly uh, food for the soul itself but it's definitely something that I derive a lot more interest from um, and then the third factor that really was what swung it for me on the model in particular was uh, in December last year, I became a dad, um, and I wanted to spend time raising my young family. My wife works as well; she's incredibly busy, uh, and so I wanted the flexibility to say, "Right, my wife has meetings today, or my wife has to work this weekend. I need to be able to take a step back. Um, I need to be flexible with this." And it's all obviously client permitting, but. I found it much easier to um, to find that flexibility in in this model. It's for 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 me. I find the the world of new law. Uh, it's a huge beacon of positivity. Anybody who has any dealings with uh, you know any new law platform, I feel like there is there is this tremendous um, will to bring people in and to help them succeed because the two things are inexorably tied. And of course, in any law firm, bringing good people in, you want them to succeed. But I think because there is a sort of a, uh, there are incentives for both parties to make it work. There is there is just this feeling of, of great positivity. And when you talk to people, uh, certainly when I've spoken to people who have made these moves, you kind of cross the Rubicon and you, you I, I feel that there are the vast majority of people that do that will never go back. I think. Yeah, I think th I think that's that's probably right. I mean, it's uh, it's very much early stages for me, and it's very much a long term uh, long term deal. Uh, it's, I don't think it's something you can do if uh, you want to give it six months and give it a try, uh, because it, it takes time to build up client base, practice, reputation. And so on. Um, particularly if, if like me, uh, it's something of a pivot uh, in my in my career. It does need that time to mature. Um, 
but you know, as I say, it's early days, but it's, it's going well. I can't see myself going back. Um, but then again, uh, you know, I don't have a crystal ball either. No, indeed. Now, let's uh, for for um, I was about to say for for the younger listeners, but that's 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 makes <laughs> <laughs> that, that that is really I'm really aging myself there. I'm only thirty one, but um, certainly I know a lot of people that listen to this podcast are um, you know either pre law or are a sort of an early stage in their career, and I think it's only fair for for those people that we we talk a little bit about how. Uh, to get into a world like sports store because I think for a lot of people it's this faraway thing that they'd love to do um, and we've spoken before on the podcast to other people who are uh, in uh, in the sports store arena um, and I think there are definitely different ways uh, to sort of penetrate that sort of sports store market uh, I would say that you probably fit into the category of you know kind of just getting hold of the best quality legal work and training that you can possibly get and then making the pivot um, also, I think Adam Russell, who was a previous guest on the podcast, he'd kind of he'd become a, a lawyer, but had through his own uh, passion for boxing, gotten uh, very close with some professional boxers. So he kind of had um, he had a sort of a client client relationship and uh, an in into a sort of another world. And when that when they kind of discovered that he was a lawyer, then it was you know, that kind of connected organically that way. But I think the vast majority of people that do want to get into sports or probably like yourself doing big corporate, you know, litigations that don't necessarily tally with their their personal interests. Do you feel that, you know, just having the benefit of having done that is just a great value add and a huge part of your, your BD strike? In fact, let's rephrase that question. As somebody who is building a um, you know business case in the in the sports uh, in the sports arena, how do you market yourself, and how do you uh, sort of how do you uh, essentially interest clients in uh, in your services? Yeah, well, as uh, the first thing I'll say is that I'm still figuring that out, uh, <laughs> but I think as a as a sort of late stage switcher or a later stage switcher into the sports law uh, field my kind of usp uh, comes from my experience and my training uh, as you said earlier you know a and o's disputes team is uh, one of the top teams in the market and the training you get there is incredible um, you know particularly in the arbitration team unlike a lot of law firms uh, a and o does its own advocacy so um you know, I've been drafting pleadings, I've been drafting cross-examinations, conducting cross-examinations myself for a number of years now. Um, and that kind of forensic analysis that's required when you do that, uh, I think makes you a really, really good lawyer. Um, and so uh, it, in a way, my USP is that I'm a great lawyer. Uh, <laughs> 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 you know, <laughs> it, it, it sounds slightly arrogant to say it, but... Um, you know that is that is my background and that is one of the ways into sports law is to kind of go away and get the best training you can in a relevant field uh, and then transfer that into sports you know what you're passionate about i mean the other way of doing it of course is to start at the bottom and do a training contract in a firm that does sports work and 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 go up from the really junior ranks and that is uh you know that's an incredibly competitive way of doing it so often people uh do go away and become a good lawyer first um and then transfer that back into the sports market at a later stage of their career yeah okay so let's in terms of the actual nuts and bolts of how one 
goes out and, and, and makes connections with the right type of clients. What do you do? Do you go out? I mean, presumably you can't go out for lunches at the moment. So it's uh, <laughs> it's uh, it's it's not it's not BD done over uh, done over an expensive dinner up the shard somewhere. It is um, it, it's presumably uh, reliant on you being quite creative. So what, what what are the methods that that you're using currently to to reach out to clients and to to build your own profile? I. Well, I'll answer that question by sort of taking a step back and talking about what I used to do uh, in, in my previous life, um, which was to write articles, go to events and meet other people in the arbitration space. Um, what I've learned very quickly now as a working for myself as part of level is that, uh, you know, that's not enough. Uh, you're going to have a lot more energy about it. Um, so I, I on the one hand i do i am still doing that kind of activity you know i'm writing for the the blog on the level website um i'm writing a what i hope is going to be a really nice article on betting in football um and uh one of the things that level is going to allow me to do is that when i publish that article uh which is, is has been quite a lot of work involved me reading every case betting case on the FA website, every single last one, uh, <laughs> um, is that I have the platform then to launch that, to get that in front of the clients, in front of the people who I want to see it, who are hopefully then going to come to me uh, and, and pay my fees. Um, and so the level gives you that platform, gives you those connections to be able to do that. Um, at the same time, there are... Uh, there are websites like Law and Sport. I've written a couple of articles for them, um, and that gets good good exposure. Uh, and then there's a sort of more, there's a more personal way of marketing, um, you know, that I'm sure sounds quite familiar to to you as a recruiter, uh, which is uh, to to not be afraid of a of a cold call, um, to target the clients that I want to meet and that I want to become my clients, and say. Have you got time for coffee? Have you got time for a 20-minute Zoom? Um, and to really kind of plug the depths of my little black book. Do I know somebody who knows somebody who knows somebody who will give me 20 minutes on a Zoom call? Um, and actually, I've found that even though it's not ideal being in a pandemic, it a lot of people have responded quite well to that. A lot of people do have 15 minutes for a Zoom call. A lot of people yeah. are quite grateful actually uh to have their day of homeworking and staring at the screen broken up by talking to somebody new um i think certainly i miss that from going into the office just daily interactions with people and meeting people and chatting to people so i've found that those requests sort of almost cold or semi-cold requests for zoom calls gone really well um it doesn't there's no substitute for meeting face to face of course I, I think that's going to be as we open up again that's going to be something that i i try to do a lot more of as well um but yeah. i think something that i've learned so so, so, so something that i've learned that I, I didn't really do previously at ano because you have this juggernaut behind you um is getting face-to-face -face time directly with clients um and i'm as i say i'm still learning and still working on that but um that's that's my kind of strategy in a nutshell. Indeed, I think uh, I think you've touched on something really interesting there. In that, there's an argument that being in big law 
can somewhat uh, and, and not to denigrate it because of course it's you know a fine a fine fine career uh, and it's most of my clients so <laughs> for, any, for anybody listening it's a great career option I'm not knocking it but there is an aspect that it can infantilize you slightly in terms of what you do from a business perspective um, and I think a lot of people would say that picking up the phone as a as an, as an associate in big law to to a client completely cold and trying to get a meeting is not something that you really have time for or are at all encouraged to do but it's tremendously exciting i mean you must be loving it because you know for me as a as a recruiter it's a huge part of what i do but there's nothing nothing beats the the kind of pre-match nerves of picking up the phone to a potential new candidate or potential new client and and just seeing you know just seeing what happens um, and of course, you know, you've got to grow a thick skin because not everybody's going to always have time for you. But people are probably, I mean, it's, and it sounds like you've been perhaps slightly surprised by how, you know, positive some of those interactions have been. So um, I was, yeah, was going to no, say, one, one thing that I think we should definitely get into is some of the, you know, some of the interesting things that you're, that you're now working on. Um, and I know that when you joined Level, you were um, you, you joined and announced your um, announced your your your, uh, your your joining of the the partnership there with uh, an article um, which was about um, the uh, the fines for footballers during COVID. Um, so there's a lot of really interesting topical headline hitting stuff, which is which is impacting sports at the moment. What are the most interesting things that you're working on, and 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 what can we what what can we uh, what, what can we glean from uh, from those? Um, well, I think COVID. It's, it's hard to go anywhere without talking about COVID. Of um, and uh, as a as a disputes specialist, um, COVID is is leading to. Uh, lots of potential work people are still i think at this stage being quite understanding and giving leeway and kind of meeting in the middle where covid has caused losses um but there is a lot of pressure on contracts out there um and a lot of covid related inquiries and advice um that could at, at some point in the in the future um blossom into a, a dispute um being a disputes practitioner and sort of marketing yourself is, is quite strange in a way because you have to say to people, I don't actually want you to have a dispute. You know, if you're going to be my client, you don't want a dispute. But that is how, that's kind of how I make my my money in my career. So in some ways I do as well. Um, yes. So, so I, th I think COVID is going to be uh, quite quite good from that perspective if i can put if i can put it like that and i think um, you can i think there's a lot of disputes practices out there that are certainly without wanting to be crass about it certainly feeling quite excited by a shake-up in the market be it you know uh, a recession there's there's always there's, there will always be winners and losers and of course the financial crash um in in 08 which deferred your training contract uh certainly then went on to you know sort of spawn the next 10 years worth of, of litigation for most of the big practices out there in the market. So I think there's nothing, uh, th there's nothing inherently wrong with perhaps being, you know, it's been a rubbish time for everyone. There's got to be something <laughs> good that's going to come out of it. So why not, you know, why not celebrate it? Um, but what about, what about gambling in football? What's, what's going on, what's going on there and uh, where are people going wrong? Well, at the at the turn of the year when I just joined uh, Level, I, I don't know if you read about 
Kieran Trippier's uh, troubles um, with the FA. Uh, that was something I found really interesting and ended up writing a sort of six and a half thousand word article for Lawrence Sport on it. Um, I didn't intend for it to be that long, uh, but actually, as I started writing, all these interesting issues kept cropping up and cropping up, and I was comparing it to the Sturridge case, uh, Daniel Sturridge, which is a sort of similar issue. Uh, and then because Kieran Trippier had since moved to Atletico, um, there was an international element to it as well. So there are all these really interesting issues uh, to the case. But ultimately, I think his offence was... Uh, a series of texts with a friend where he sort of said lump on if you want mate um which is 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 probably not a good look uh <laughs> in the in the eyes of the fa um but it raises really interesting questions um you know particularly with market betting markets like that on transfers everybody knows rumors fly on the training ground people are talking you know footballers are perfectly entitled to talk to their friends, talk to their family. Uh, you know, you're not going to move from Tottenham to Spain uh, without speaking to your mates um, and your family. So it's quite a, quite a sort of thin line uh, to tread there. And one that's quite difficult, I think, um, for footballers, particularly because of the prevalence of, of gambling in the industry, uh, you know, on shirts and sort of plastered all over the, steps and dugouts and things and betting is very much part of their lives and how they uh, sort of communicate with each other um, and so it's quite difficult I think to be on top of particularly that issue in the Trippier case was quite a nuanced legal issue um, it's quite difficult to really tread that thin line um, so there's, there's those two cases which uh, spawn a lot of it interest and a lot of uh, really interesting issues partly because they uh, are obviously two very high profile footballers um and after writing that article i in the process of doing it i'd read a lot of cases about more direct betting offenses so it's against the fa rules for players of step four to place any bets on football anywhere in the world um so there's an example of one case of a guy uh, who was playing in a, uh, I think it was Premier League or Championship team, placing a bet on the Champions League final, which didn't involve him, didn't involve any of his team or his clubmates or anything, but he was still in breach of the rules um, uh, and suffered a fine as a result. So I got very interested in, in that and those kind of direct cases as well. And as I said earlier, ended up reading all of them for the purposes of uh, an empirical analysis of those cases so a lot of the things that go into those cases and how the decisions are made by regulatory commissions at the fa are what level of offense are we talking about have you just placed a bet on the champions league final or have you placed a bet against your own team have you placed a bet on yourself to concede a goal you know if you're a keeper or whatever you know those are the much more serious kind of match fixing type offenses at one end of the scale and then at the other, you have uh, placing bets on matches that you're not involved in. Um, and so I've taken all those cases and slotted them into those categories and looked at things like the average sanction based on those categories. But then commissions also consider what makes the offence more serious, what makes the offence less serious. You know, are you a 
an academy player who's just come out of training who hasn't really had much education on betting or are you a seasoned professional who's been in the Premier League for years um, and who has had that education on multiple occasions? Um, those factors weigh on the outcome of your case. And so what I've done is add all that together and kind of got this comprehensive Excel spreadsheet uh, which <laughs> looks at the details of all the cases and that kind of the magic, allows the magic circle lawyer in you will never die <laughs> well I feel I feel relatively at home with a spreadsheet I know a lot of lawyers who um, who, who absolutely do not my uh, my wife's a management consultant she's always laughing at my inability to use Excel properly but I consider myself for a lawyer relatively well versed um, but that allows me to look at all these cases, aggregate the data and say, okay, what is the most effective mitigating factor for reducing the sanction on a player? What is the most serious aggravating factor? How do we get to a combination of those factors for players uh, to reach the minimum sanction? Um, Presumably there, are, and, and, and not to sound, uh, not to sound too, too, too dumb here, but if I were if I were a footballer, I would be thinking to myself, well, what, what could possibly be wrong with me uh, betting on a, a game that I've got nothing to do with? I'm not corrupting the outcome of it. You know, it's it's a, it's far away. I've got nothing to do with it. What's the what's the issue? And how and 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 sort of further to that, how much trouble are you really going to get in if you if you do that? <laughs> well, um, I think the case I was talking about, I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head, but I think it was a Premier League player and he was fined i think it was 25 grand um yeah. i so remember half an hour seeing that and thinking yeah exactly exactly uh, but that would be what i call a category one offense at the less serious end and you don't generally get a ban for that kind of offense just a fine um it's where you are betting on your own team that you start to look at longer bans and if you're betting against your own team you're sort of looking at six months or more at the low end of the, of the scale. Uh, and the FA does have education initiatives for all these players. So if you're a Premier League player, you're going to have been told probably a hundred times by a club, please don't bet on football. Uh, how, so, so how, yeah, there is education. How, how prevalent, I mean, it sounds to me like it's something that could probably happen fairly often. For, for, for out of interest how does one and, and not that we're trying to help any uh professional footballers here cover up their <laughs> cover up their activities but how are people getting caught doing this uh it varies um obviously the premier league and the fa have relationships with betting companies um through various sponsorship arrangements and simply through the market in which they exist and so sometimes you will see uh, in a case, uh, there'll be a paragraph saying it was brought to the FA's attention by a well-known gambling company that an account with this name existed, exists and was placing bets on football. And so we investigated that. Um, so simply by virtue of being high profile enough to be picked out by a gambling operator uh, can get you caught. Um, there are examples of uh, game matches in the lower leagues where uh, the FA sort of received a tip off about potential match fixing um, and then obviously investigated that quite closely and looked at the members of those teams who were involved. And although, you know, I don't think any match fixing allegations were ever raised, 
they did discover a lot of these betting uh, infractions. And then I think probably the third uh, the third way you get caught, if, if I can put it like that, is um, is volume. Uh, just by placing so many bets that you you, you make it obvious. And, um, you know, I think probably a good example of that is, is Joe Barton, who's pr- probably the most high-profile pro- case under these rules, um, who had many thousands of bets placed uh, over the over a, a number of seasons. Um and probably, I, th- I think, ended up getting caught just by virtue of the volume of bets uh, that he was placing. Okay, so there, there is, there's an element that some of this stuff does happen, flies under the radar for a time, but it, perhaps you know, just through 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 luck or um, just being really blatant about what you're doing, people people <laughs> are coming people are coming a cropper on this. Um, do uh, and, and sorry, not to get into the weeds on this, but it's just a really fascinating topic. Do um, do, do sporting bodies have any powers to? Because uh, presumably this is in part reliant on uh, the gambling company to sort of be forthcoming with information. Um, I guess a question that flows from that is what incentive do they have to raise this stuff, um, and what powers do sort of sporting bodies have to look into? potential violations and how uh, and, and how far can they sort of dig and investigate this stuff to the extent that they even want to uh well i think the incentives for the gambling companies are to foster a good relationship with uh the regulator and and the industry um so you know if you if the fa has a, a relationship with a particular operator and that operator is reporting uh, participants uh, to them. I should I should say this this isn't just players. It's all participants. Uh, okay. Which is so even like coaching good. coaching staff, the guy there was a case, the boots. There was a there's a case of a guy who did security at, um, at the grounds. He self reported actually, um, and you know he wasn't. He, it, but he was betting against his own teams in inverted commas. But obviously, as the guy who does the security, he he doesn't have the influence of the manager, for example. Um, but it is a very broad net uh, that gets cast. Um, and I, I'm sorry, I've forgotten where we were going <laughs> with this one. Well, uh, so the, I, was, uh, I, was, I was asking, I guess, two things here. So one was about um, the uh, why the uh, gambling companies have a, an incentive to do it, which you answered very uh, clearly. Um, the, the other thing was, uh, I guess, sort of what powers uh, regulators have to sort of actively look into these things. Is it kind of like, you know, SFO style dawn raid on uh, on a footballer's house to have a look at their Paddy Power <laughs> account to see to see whether or not they've strayed from betting on the darts <laughs> to having a little flutter on the football. I, I I suspect not. I suspect there's no there's no dawn raids going on. Um, what most regulators do, and this applies uh, not just in the world of sports but any regulated profession, really, is uh, by agreeing to be bound by the rules of that profession um the rules will contain an obligation on participants to comply uh with the regulations and to comply and cooperate with investigations one of the interesting things about the trippier case is actually because he was there he by the time the case sort of came about he was in spain he was no longer under the fa's jurisdiction and so um you know he, he his obligation to uh, cooperate with the FA's uh, investigations was 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 much less than somebody who was still in England. 
Um, and it was to his credit, actually, that he sort of gave up his phone for uh, investigation by the FA, and they the panel gave him a lot of credit for that because um, you know it was it was actually you know his, his text messages that or WhatsApp messages that ended up causing him so much trouble. Um, so his, his cooperation was seen as uh, a mitigating factor. Okay. Well, I mean, so you, you, one, one might say that he, I guess he's kind of done the right thing for sport, but perhaps at his own expense there, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I I think the the issue he would have had if he'd refused to cooperate would be in coming back to England and in his participation in uh, representative games for the England team. Uh, right. You know, if he okay. made an enemy of the FA, uh, that that aspect of his career could have been a bit more difficult so uh whilst there are there are rules uh to oblige participants to cooperate there's a lot of kind of soft power in there as well if you want to come back to england then uh, uh you know you better cooperate with our investigation yeah i guess so and, and presumably for anybody that has uh, ambitions of international football they don't necessarily want to be on uh, any any naughty lists for uh, for any undue reasons um i guess football exactly. football is uh, obviously a great uh, a great industry to to be a lawyer in it's you know it's a tremendous money uh, revenue generator obviously um money in football being quite a, a touchy subject at the moment given the uh, recent uh, <laughs> uh, european super league debacle um but outside of football and uh, in, 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 in in i guess in other sporting areas uh, you know I know you're a darts man from your uh, from your time working at working at the bar. But are there any other particular uh, uh, sports that you're particularly interested in and are involved with, and, and that sort of throw up some some other interesting issues outside of football? Yeah, so I'm a I'm a big rugby fan. Have been uh, all my life. Uh, you know, with, with my dad, who's a, a well mad Welshman, never really had any choice. Um, so rugby is definitely a, a sport that I, I'm interested in uh, in working in. Um, and one of the things that I, I, I've done as part of my sort of BD and practice growth is join uh, the London Disciplinary Panel for the Rugby Football Union. Um, so that panel, although I haven't sat any cases yet, that panel hears... Um, disciplinary on-field matters, off-field matters as well. But uh, although listeners can't see this, you're wearing a Quinn's shirt. Um, Mike Brown's misdemeanor at the weekend is exactly the kind of thing that those panels will uh, will see uh, and will hear. So that kind of disciplinary process in rugby is um, definitely uh, uh, of interest to me. Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think rug rugby seems to me to be that i guess there's so many uh, parallels between the world of law and rugby in that rugby has laws doesn't have uh, <laughs> doesn't have rules i think um wayne barnes the referee is he not a barrister he is a barrister yeah he's a barrister yeah so that there, there seems to be quite a, a strong connection uh, and the framework for i'd be interested to get your take on this how how different is the sort of the regulatory and disciplinary framework in rugby uh, compared to football um, I think by its nature and the amount of money that flows through it, football's regulatory structure is more complex. Um, actually, when you're looking at on-field disciplinary 
matters in rugby uh, it's quite prescribed um there are you know there are a myriad of offenses that you warrant a red card and that can get you cited and get you before a disciplinary panel but uh, you know the kind of offense uh, at the moment that's getting a lot of attention rightly so is contact with the head um and world rugby introduced a new framework for that very recently um which is quite legalistic in its nature and actually um you sort of go through the stages of that process as a referee uh, and decide on the appropriate outcome a yellow or a red card and you have to take into account very legal concepts like recklessness uh, and mitigation and uh, there's this concept of highly reckless which i don't quite uh understand i wasn't able to find any any case law on what highly reckless means as opposed to regular recklessness um but once you what, what so you take that offense uh contact with the head and there is a there are there's a low entry point a mid entry point uh, and and a high entry point uh and the broadest discretion that the panel has in those kind of cases is deciding on the entry point it's not it's not really a sliding scale so if your low end is three weeks your mid is six weeks and your high end is 12 weeks can't give someone something between mid and top it's either six or 12 weeks um so to take mike brown's example he uh, was found to have committed a highly reckless offense which warranting a top end sanction of 12 weeks um and that framework although the although the length of uh, suspension varies that is applicable to all the kind of myriad offenses that you can commit so uh, you know if you punch somebody then that's got a particular low mid high end and then once you decide on that you look at aggravating and mitigating factors much like you do in any regulatory disciplinary context um as I was talking earlier about the aggravating and mitigating factors you can see in in betting cases uh aggravating and mitigating factors you see in dis on-field kind of disciplinary cases are uh things things like uh, record of their previous conduct you know if you've been sent off five times this season for uh high tackles then um your sixth high tackle is likely to warrant a more severe sanction Indeed, I guess with the, the the career that Mike Brown has had, uh, <laughs> there, there there may or may not be uh, some some uh, some uh, well the opposite of some mitigating circumstances going on there. And in fact, taking this uh, taking this example of of Mike Brown, I'm obviously wearing my Quinn shirt and sporting uh, the, <laughs> the, the the Mike Brown lid. Um, will uh, will a law, uh, will uh, a player who's who's up uh, in front of a citing committee for an on field defence will they go in lawyered up? uh usually i would think so uh, depending on the level uh that they're playing at of course you know if you're sort of middlesex merit table league three like i play at then uh you're you're probably not going to go in lawyer up but at the professional level um you know there, there are people who uh, who represent players in these kind of disciplinary um proceedings it's a relatively short process it's not you know it's not a long and involved uh, a case like you might find, you know, it's not an FFP investigation, a financial fair play investigation, which might take a bit longer. Um, but I do think that at the professional level, these guys are using lawyers. Yeah. 
Yeah. Okay. So uh, if there are any uh, badly behaved rugby players out there who uh, f- feel like they uh, they might need to get lawyered up, they need to be knocking on your door then. In fact, are you able, <laughs> are you able, as somebody who sits on a disciplinary panel, can you represent people in front of it? I can't, I can't appear before the panel that I sit on, no, um, which does kind of limit that aspect of the practice somewhat. But turning back to your question about um, how I'm developing myself and my practice, uh, the decision I made there is that the connections I'm going to make by sitting on the panel with other panellists uh, and with the people who attend those hearings uh, is, is going to, in the long run, I hope, uh, be more valuable than perhaps a couple of cases over the over the next year or so no indeed um okay the what one other thing and i'm not sure how much of a um how how, how i guess sort of uh, interested in ofay you are with this and it's certainly something that uh, is is slightly outside of my own um my own comfort zone um but i'm i'm reliably informed that the world of esports is you know sort of fast set to become a huge huge source of um, of interest for lawyers uh, obviously, the the sums of money involved in gaming these days are absolutely eye watering. Um, you know, whereas previously gaming was you know something your parents would shout at you uh, for doing too much of. Now there are you know people earning multi millions just from streaming their own videos online. Uh, do you see that as something for yourself uh, in in the future that you'd like to be involved with? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you're right that the sums of money involved have very quickly become eye-watering um, and because the industry has developed so quickly compared to something like football the regulatory landscape is relatively immature um, so there's a lot of work to do and um, you know believe it or not anti-doping is something that's quite serious in uh, in the gaming industry because uh there are and obviously safeguarding issues um with the age of the participants in, in, in esports is a real issue but uh you know turning back to anti-doping um there are serious risks of players using uh, attention deficit drugs and overdosing on caffeine and things like that to kind of maintain their concentration using things like ritalin to maintain their concentration levels for these games wow. um, which is uh, worlds apart from my own video gaming experience uh, which used to be playing my flatmates on fifa um do you ever do you ever um i remember we used to have a rule with my flatmates where if you won five nil they had to write an apology to you on facebook I think uh, I think it's surely if there is any if there ever ever is any sort of like uh, overarching body that that takes over the regulation of um, of FIFA that needs to be one of the one of the laws that's enshrined. <laughs> um, and I think I think it would be quite quite a fun case as a lawyer to enforce the sending of uh, of said lawyer to <laughs> to the family for the uh, with with the full apology. I think that'd be quite uh, that'd be an yeah. interesting one an interesting one to draft. Um, <laughs> I find I find that world something uh, very alien because I feel like I kind of missed the boat. My my like the heyday of my gaming experiences were getting absolutely thrashed at FIFA when I went to university because I came from a rugby family and never really got into it. So uh, I've had to write many an apology letter. Uh, in fact, I've got, you know, <laughs> I basically got a pro form one printed out ready to go for for, for, for any time <laughs> I step up to the plate. The so, SFP, yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly, yeah. Um, but uh, for, for me, it was all about GoldenEye on the N64, which I still think has never been matched. 
Um, although I did play play uh, play a game of that not too long ago, and I couldn't believe how crap the graphics were and how amazing <laughs> I thought they were at the time. So I'm I'm totally out of. But I feel that um, as as a, as a fresh industry with gambling issues, with as you say, with uh, anti doping issues, and the fact that you know we're dealing with you know with with uh, a lot of the time very very young um you know very very young players you have no framework around them for support um that to me is it, it's it's a huge part of the future i do wonder though that um because a lot of the people that are into that world are also into the world of bitcoin and into the world of cryptocurrency and the the kind of rejection of regulation and you know it's that kind of ultimate anarcho capitalist style of um uh, of, of business world whether whether it's going to be possible to kind of you know uh, you know, has the horse bolted a little bit on that? Do you do you have do you have any ideas at all about how that might materialise? Um, I, I think the principal driver of increased regulation in something like esports is going to be desire for inclusion in the mainstream. So, for example, in the Olympic movement, um, you know, the Olympics have recently put on their first virtual event and it's kind of a hybrid event that doing sort of cycling is is, is big in esports because you can do it from a, a, a peloton machine or, um, or something like that. And, you know, there are a whole host of sort of interesting virtual doping issues that come with that. Um, which we, you know, I'm sure we could, we could we could talk about for another hour. But um, I, think, I think I think the esports though, if they're going to do that, it's, 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 there's loads of people that have said in the past that we should have two Olympics. We should have the juiced up Olympics and then the the <laughs> the, the non juiced up Olympics, just to see what people are capable of. I don't think there are that many serious people that really back that because obviously there's lots of uh, health concerns that could come with that. But you know, maybe we should just leave it. Let let them do it. Let them take the Ritalin and really, really just smash <laughs> smash the KDR on call on Call of Duty. I think it would be quite interesting to see. But I guess do you, so. Do you think, from a financial perspective, in order to really take that industry to the next level, it will need to be sort of brought under control. It will need to be regulated in some way for it to fit with the corporate model, for it to attract sponsorship and all of that kind of stuff. Yeah. So part of part of being part and parcel of the Olympic movement or being considered an Olympic sport is that you need to have an overarching governing body, which some, is something that esports for a long time didn't have, uh, because it's set up in a, in you know it's only really evolved over the last few years. Um, that competing governing bodies were springing up, uh, regional governing bodies, and that was part of the Olympics' original kind of reluctance to recognize esports uh, as part of the movement. So I think once you get that uh, top-down regulation, once you get that overarching governing body that can impose rules on people, and if you want to be, you know, if you want to be part of the club, you've got to sign up to the rules. Um, that that will drive increasing regulation, and you might see splinter tournaments. Uh, you know, far be it for us after fifty-five minutes to start talking about breakaway leagues. Um, but you know, I, I can I can see I can see that kind of thing happening if there is a pushback against regulation in esports for example if there's a pushback against top-down regulation because they want to be in the olympic movement uh it's it's a sport that its nature is uh it, it, it's very much a, a sport for the pandemic you know you can you can compete remotely um and it's very nimble in that sense so i can see uh a breakaway group um you know 
desirous of less regulation who aren't that bothered about taking part in the Olympics um, forming and, and going forward. Okay, yeah. So it could it could end up being a little bit fractured, and there'll be you know some that will want to sort of go into that mainstream fold, and others that will. Uh, that will move away from it that's that's really um, I, I i knew the trouble with this podcast was going to be trying to contain it within uh <laughs> in, within a, a respectable amount of time because it's just there's, there's so many interesting things that we can talk about one uh one one last thing i want to cover before um i i finish with a closing question is um i guess the world of social media um i i feel that you know at this point in time particularly with you know, we've had Twitter around for a long time, but a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of sports people are now speaking directly to audiences, you know, James, James Haskell's podcast, um, you know, the House of Rugby podcast, the, you know, What a Flanker podcast. There's this huge, huge opportunities for, for players to have direct um, communication with the general public, which has never, never existed before. And it's added this tremendously pressured and slightly precarious dimension to um, you know, being a high-profile footballer, whereas you know we've always had tabloid newspapers. There's always been you know someone being slightly loose-lipped in an interview. Now you know you can have had a couple of drinks after after a game and you know send out a tweet and get some serious serious flack for it. Um, do you have you sort of found yourself you know obviously coming from a, sort of an arbitration background? Um, do you do you do you take any interest in I guess the sort of the media? Uh, aspects of um you know of law and and you know are there any particularly interesting issues for you uh, in that space right now definitely i mean as you say it creates a quite precarious situation for athletes because um nobody likes to see sort of corporate robots spouting the party line when they're interviewed in post match i don't know i can't remember the guy's name but i don't know if you saw that interview with the bristol prop oh with carl sinclair uh, no, well, the other Bristol prop, but the interview with Carl Sinclair was fantastic yes. about his admission to the Lions. You really saw what it meant to him and how kind of raw and emotional he was about it. And that was that was great to see uh, somebody being honest and open and really put themselves out there. That's kind of the, although we focused, that, that event is focused on, you know, something that's obviously uh, very sad for, for Carl Sinclair. Um you know that's kind of i see that as one of the positives of, of social media being able to You're get in right, touch yeah. and put yourself across um and and, and you know athletes and uh, and sports people i think need to do that as part of their persona um no the, the interview i was talking about was with one of the other props who's just this fantastic character talking about the gladiatorial battle with the spartans from gloucester or something like that and it, it sort of blew up a little bit on social media and again it was one of those things positive sides that uh, you can put across your personality a bit um the negative side of it obviously is well not everybody has a great personality um, indeed i guess if you're, <laughs> if, you're, if you're israel falau then twitter hasn't necessarily worked out too 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 well for you but yeah I, I totally exactly agree, yeah. but it can it can lead to uh, you know exactly the kind of case that I would be interested in, and exactly the kind of case that is is going to be my bread and butter, really, which is disciplinary proceedings. If you um, are, are, are tweeting or on Instagram, um, you know, tweeting your dislike for the referee, for example, as any fan, you know, as any millions of fans do, but if you do that as a player, uh, that, that's that's an issue. 
and something that the the regulators might be interested in something you might need a lawyer's help defending um against so i think i think there might be a, surely there's a there's a there's a business here where uh, uh players players sign up to a sort of a specific social media filter that flags every post they do f- to their lawyer first uh, to get to get signed <laughs> off to make sure they're they're not going to get sued for it i think we'll, we'll, we'll talk we'll, we'll talk about this on there yeah, people do do that. There was um, who was it recently? Was it Phil Foden has a social media management company who do all his posts, and they posted something about something he didn't like. Essentially, it seemed like a light-hearted post, but he he disliked it, and um, you know I, I don't think he uses their services any longer. But those services do exist. Is the is the point I was making? <laughs> no, in, indeed. Well, I was I was thinking I was thinking more of a kind of like a, a direct access lawyer model where you come up with your own content, say what you want, but we'll just make sure that you're not going to get sued for this one. So we'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll 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 bin we'll bin the ones about disagreeing with gay marriage as you allowed, but we'll let you we'll let you tweet a picture of you doing a very sweet one handed offload um, on your way down to the deck. That's that's absolutely fine. Yeah. yeah. Um, now uh, we've just hit we've just hit the hour mark, so I think it's probably time for um, for, for for me to wrap up and let you uh, crack on with a nice Friday afternoon to BD to be doing. Um, my, my, my final question to you, and I ask this to, to, to most people on the podcast, uh, and I think it's pertinent to people who, like you, have sort of made this career pivot, um, is is there any um, sort of words of advice that you would like to, I guess, sort of share with uh, your younger self as, an, as a lawyer earlier on in your career that perhaps you, you didn't get at the time? Or if that's too much of a difficult question because sometimes it's very hard to answer that um was there any particular piece of advice that you were given as a lawyer that's really stuck with you and has sort of helped you in your own career to date um i'll I'll start with the second question because that's a much easier one um a piece of advice that was given to me when i was very junior uh, and going uh, doing an advocacy course on sort of cross examination and stuff, and I was very much the most junior person in the room. Um, you know, having having I think somebody had dropped out of the course actually because they were too busy, and uh, I, I took the place. Um, but it doesn't it doesn't matter if you're the most junior person in the room if you're the best prepared. Um, so that for me is that's that's been something that I try and take with me in every piece of work I do is really be forensic about it um and you'll find that or at least i've found that that doesn't always people don't always follow that advice um and so you know i came out of that i got a lot out of that course in terms of learning but i actually came out of that course i think i did better uh and performed better than people who are much more established than me simply because i was able to i was across the materials um and then the other one, the other piece of advice that I was given and always pass on actually, um, you know, to, to, to juniors and trainees and things is, uh, about, it's about knowing the audience. And it, it sounds like something that, um, you know, you get is the first bullet point on a slide when you first join a firm. Um, but actually everybody, there are very few people who do law as their hobby. Right. You know, um, I enjoy my job. I enjoy doing sports law, but it's not quite my hobby. You know, I spend time with my family and stuff. There's always something that somebody w- would rather be doing. So, you know, when you're producing a piece of work, the way to produce a really quality piece of work is to make that person's life easier. Um, 
and it applies at whatever stage you're at you know if you're a trainee and you're given a piece of work by a junior associate try and make their life easier you know knock off all the research points or if you're a partner and you've got a client coming to you with a problem how can you make their life easier um that's kind of the question that i always ask myself uh when i'm when i'm doing a piece of work that that's that's absolutely brilliant it, it's a, i think a lot of advice can sometimes get quite into the into the weeds and be very specific uh, and i i'm uh, I, i'm a big listener to all of those sort of self-improvement podcasts and um the uh, the tim ferris um podcast being a great one for just talking about first principles just having a certain overarching philosophy that you kind of always is your go-to before you do anything and i think what you just said there about how can i make this person you know he's asking me to do something how can i make their life easier and it kind of speaks to not just doing the minimum but doing you know doing exactly you know everything that you possibly can to to make that an effective use of your time so i guess if you are um you know you're missing out on time with family or doing something that you really love at least you're making it absolutely worthwhile yeah exactly and you're allowing the person who uh, who gave you that work to to do that for themselves and then you build a relationship they reciprocate so you get more time with your family you know i think it's it's law like any business as you'll know is is all about relationships and so I, i think having that question in in my mind when i do a piece of work really helps me build those relationships as well what an absolutely great way to uh, end the podcast <laughs> we didn't plan it everyone i swear we didn't know but that's that that was a, a great knowledge bomb so for everybody that made it to the end of the episode uh you've uh you you've, you've, you've saved the best till uh, we've saved the best till last there so thank you very much for that aj pleasure thank you for having me